welcome to Gravedigger Radio Podcast, broadcasting live from the afterlife. Hey guys, Zach and Jason hang out here in Gravedigger Radio Studio. Jason, you've got a pretty cool story for us today about some old American history. Well, I'd like to think so. I was thinking about bringing you all the curious case of Constantine Raffinesque. Actually, his real name is is a bit fancier than that. Constantine Samuel Raffinesque Schmaltz. Schmaltz? What kind of name is that? Uh, German, apparently. Oh, okay. (laughs) He was born in 1783 to a German mother and a French father in the old Ottoman Empire, which, of course, is now Turkey, Turkey, somewhere near Constantinople, which, of course, is now Istanbul. Great song about that. And I was actually doing a little bit of research on it <laughs> as far as that time period, what was going on in the area. Uh-huh. And the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire had broken out into like massive war in that area anyway. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to make a joke about why did Constantinople get the works and see if you could pick me up on that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's... it's it's before my time, but that's still a popular song that everyone knows about. <laughs> it's one of the greatest songs ever written, in my opinion. But anyway, um, he was sort of a, a boy genius. Um, words that have been used to describe Constantine Raffinesque are polymath, polyglot, and autodidact. Now, now, what are those? Like, what? Well, I was going to ask you. I, I had, <laughs> I had no idea. I read on there, and I was like, that you know, that sounds like a whole lot of things going on at one time. Polyglot, I'd run across before. It's someone, you know, poly is many. Glot refers to languages. So he's a person that was just kind of naturally skilled with languages. And I guess if you got a, a German mother, a French father born in, you know, what well, is modern day Turkey. So he's probably got some Turkish and some, some Arabic going on. Maybe he just kind of, you know, came into that, honestly. A polymath is a person who knows a lot of things about a lot of different subjects and can kind of weave them all together in academic studies and knowledge. So he's kinda, maybe we would say a Renaissance man, or he, can, he knows a lot of things about a lot of things. And then an autodidact is a person who can kind of self-learn. You put information in front of them and they just consume it and they, they can learn kind of on their own in a vacuum almost and, and take in a lot of information. So you put all those together, and yeah, I think boy genius is kind of a good way to describe him. Well, especially in, a, in an area before Google. I mean, that's <laughs> that's kind of the thing. It had to be a pain in the ass at the time. Yeah. So we don't know much about his early life, but he did eventually get uh, make his way to the United States, and especially in the area around Philadelphia, where he was employed by the Clifford Brothers Mercantile House. Now, that was his official job, but at the time, he was always doing science on the side. It's like his was hobby, almost like podcasting. He would just do scientific experiments on the side, especially in, in the natural sciences. He was big about identifying different species of creatures and plant life. It's also about this time where he heard about the Lewis and Clark expeditions. You know, in 1803, the United States made the Louisiana Purchase, which is like a third of our country now. And so they were putting together the Lewis and Clark expedition, and he actually wanted to go as a scientist to record all the different sort of critters they would meet along the way. But for some reason, and I couldn't find out why, but Thomas Jefferson, who was president at the time, shot him down. He petitioned twice to join the expedition, but he wasn't allowed to go. I mean, if you look at this guy, though, he kind of looks like a mixture between uh, Ron Weasley and Marty Feldman from uh, (laughs) Young Frankenstein. I I do picture him kind of showing up like, yes, yes, I would like to go. Yeah, well, you say that. Apparently, though, he was quite the ladies' man, though. He was involved with a couple of women, maybe fathered numerous um, illegitimate children. I know that's not in the notes because I try to keep it clean and wholesome here on the Great Digger Radio <laughs> he Podcast. He was probably something else, too. <laughs> yeah. 
but he he did find his way. I mean, up 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 the social ladders between eighteen o in eighteen o five and eighteen fifteen. Again, all the while he's he's practicing science on the side, and he, he wrote voluminously. But he was in Sicily at this point, working as the secretary for the United States Consul in Sicily, and again practicing science the whole time and keeping a copious amount of notes and material, pamphlets, always writing about what he found. He came back to the United States around 1815. At this time, like I said, he already had quite amount of work. He was known in academic circles as, as a, this great natural scientist. And after that stint, he returned to the United States in 1815. And by this time, he was already a well-known academic in the natural sciences. Um, however, unfortunately, he was shipwrecked off of Long Island Sound, and a lot of his pamphlets, a lot of his writing, a lot of his research, his life's work, went down to Davy Jones' locker. Man, I wanted to be like uh, Cthulhu or something, especially showing up this time. Mm-hmm. Like, how great would that have been for a story? You know, he's a science guy showing up. This is all some, like, H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> shit right here. And, you know, he's sailing to the new world, and then suddenly Cthulhu. Yeah. Well, as an aside, I also found out that he, um, you know, his big thing was identifying species, animal, the flora, and the fauna, and giving them scientific names. That was kind of his thing. Of course, he was gifted with languages anyway, so he's creating all these scientific languages for these new species he's discovering. Maybe around this time, um, he actually gave a name, Megophius monstrosus, to a sea serpent, a great, quote, great sea serpent that he encountered off the coast of Gloucester, Massachusetts. So I know that's right up your alley with the cryptids and everything there, Zacho. Yeah, I actually, when I was doing research for this show, I didn't come across that, but I saw a uh, like a picture of a sea monster, and I kind of just discounted it as just some, some drawing. You can't go around discounting sea monsters, I, dude. I know, I know. There wasn't really anything to link to it. Like, <laughs> Was there any more information on this creature? Uh, not much. Um, it was just uh, kind of referred to as Massey. I guess for Massachusetts, but that was his thing. He went around sticking scientific names on critters, and well, there's a great sea serpent. It needs scientific name. Well, and and too though, wasn't this guy? He was a uh, he was a contemporary of Darwin, anyway, wasn't he? He, I know honestly, he was a bit ahead of the game. Yeah, um, he was he was using the term evolution way ahead of Darwin. Darwin didn't publish you know evolution of species until um, 1861, and and. Too the big thing of it was for him to even say this, it was considered heretical, right? And other scientists completely discounted him. They then right. they eventually use like when the term like raffine or something like that to say like his name was like a lazy way of going about science. And yeah, we'll get into that more later because once he makes makes his way to to us here in Kentucky, he runs into a lot of trouble with his his scientific methods because again he's just way ahead of the game and using things that are in their in their scientific infancy. He was quite. The, pioneer. Anyway, now we're up to about 1818, and he makes his way down here to Henderson, Kentucky, to just hang out with and meet the great John James Audubon. I'm sure our listeners have heard of that name. Of course, John Audubon was the the guy who went around the country, another natural scientist, cataloging the creatures, you know, native to the United States, making his great artistic renditions. I think he's really famous, especially for birds and avian species. So they obviously had a lot to talk about. And there's a funny story coming from that time when he was staying with Audubon, where Audubon was awakened in the middle of the night to quite the ruckus. And so he goes into Raffinesque's room and throws the door open, and he sees <laughs> he sees Raff, and his room is apparently swarmed with a bunch of bats. And Raffinesque grabs his, his, his favorite violin and is using this to kind of swat the bats and take them on. You can imagine that scene. <laughs> like, this is something straight out of, like, a, uh, a 1950s kind of B-movie, <laughs> in a sense, where you're running around. Like, I can only imagine the sound from there. And I guess, you know, construction was different then, but I wonder how all the bats got into the room. 
I, I don't know. Uh, maybe they were attracted. If, you know, this guy was, I, I think he probably had like obsessive compulsive disorder. Like he could not do anything but study and research 24 7. And he maybe he was up until the wee hours of night, had his candles going, and the, and the moths were attracted to the light, and the bats were preying on the moths, and they just came on in. And I don't know. What said in the shipwreck, he lost like 60,000 specimens that he had brought over to study. And, and I wouldn't doubt it. He was always packing around all these specimens. So now we come to the part that, that's kind of local to us. You know, new listeners may be just uncovering that uh, we're located here in the Lexington, Kentucky area. And from 1819 to 1826, he becomes a full professor at the prestigious, especially at the time, Transylvania University all right, in Lexington, all right. Kentucky. All right, you're telling me this guy teaches at Transylvania, mm-hmm. and he's got a swarm of bats around. This motherfucker's Dracula, all right? <laughs> I mean, he kind of looks like him, too. You've been reading ahead in my notes. <laughs> yes, noble listener, Transylvania University is a real place. It's a, it's a rather small private college right here in Lexington. I mean, it's two blocks off of Main Street in Lexington, Kentucky. I think it, it's home to about 1,500 students. It's named Transylvania because it was the first college west of the Allegheny Mountains back when Kentucky was the western frontier of the United States. Founded in 1780 when Kentucky was still a part of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, the Thomas Jefferson, was the governor of Virginia then, and he made the land grant and pushed the, res- pushed the resolution through the Virginia Assembly to establish the first university in the West. You know, in Kentucky nowadays, we don't think we're not West. At the time, we were. We were the 15th state, founded in 1792, admitted to the Union. So we're pretty early doors, and we're one of the first steps West, as far as the colonies are concerned. Um, the name Transylvania simply means, you know, beyond the woods, across the woods. So that's why it was given that name. Uh, do you want to go into the fun fact here? Yeah, um, I, I thought you would really appreciate yeah, this. I, it's it's kind of adorable, actually. <laughs> I, I do kind of love it. So in 1987, the university sued Hallmark Cards. The greeting card company. Yeah. Yeah. Or or the movie. I mean, is Hallmark Cards and the movie company? Well, they got their own like like a little TV channel now and their own network and everything. It's all this horrible like over dramatic melodramatic drivel. There are people that like fall over and froth the mouth for those movies, man. You're gonna have torches and pitchforks showing up at your house when this airs. (laughs) It was just a misunderstanding. Well, they uh, they issued a cease and desist. Transylvania issued a cease and desist to Hallmark cards. So the company, Hallmark, they produced a bunch of novelty t-shirts marketing Transylvania University, having no idea that it was a real thing. (laughs) The uh, shirts had the motto on them that we go for the throat and E pluribus bitem. Which is really, it's really cute. But I am kind of shocked that they didn't realize that Transylvania was a a real thing, especially at that time. Well, this was 1987, so I guess they couldn't do a simple Google search like, oh, by the way, did anybody check to see if this actually exists? So, yeah, they made a lot of money, and since their independent retailers were independent retailers, the overall company couldn't actually prohibit them from going ahead and selling the shirts that they had purchased and received. So a lot of these went out to market. They sold out immediately here in Lexington. Oh, and, I'm sure. People Transy, loved it. Transy was pissed. I'm really shocked that Transy hasn't got onto the whole vampire thing to, oh, to market. Oh, stay tuned, the- noble listener. Oh, Anyway, um, back back to Raffinesque. He he became professor at Transy. We call it Transy for short here locally. In, in botany and the natural sciences, natural philosophy. It makes him sound like some kind of druid to me. I know. I kind of like it. Yeah. And, and this this was like the height of his career. During this time, he was extremely prolific. Not that he wasn't already, but he really hit his stride during his time in. Life. And by the end of his career, he had cataloged and given official scientific names to over twenty seven hundred species of animals, and around sixty seven hundred 
species of plants. And a lot of these are still in use today. No shit. So he hangs out in ruins. He's at Transylvania. Yep. To do that much work, he doesn't sleep. No. Nope. Uh, he's ba- he's a uh, he's Dracula. Skips class a lot because there's only. I'm I can't say that he's not Dracula. There's and, no proof he isn't. And he was very famous for the many species of bats that he gave scientific names. And if anybody again knows anything about Kentucky, we are the cave capital of the planet. So a lot of a lot of bats hanging around. Um, also, while at Transit, he became obsessed with the ruins of the local prehistoric Indian mounds. And I'm talking old, old, not like Cherokee and Shawnee from like a couple hundred years ago. We're talking prehistoric cultures like the Adena and the Hopewell cultures. You're from a little north of here, Zach, so you probably heard the word Hopewell thrown around a lot. Oh, yeah. And if we learned anything from last episode, leave the Indian burial mounds alone. Yeah, I'm thinking this may become a trend in the podcast. <laughs> While he was living in Lexington, he mapped out 148 recognized Indian sites, uh, most of them in Kentucky and very close to Lexington. He was a, one of the first researchers on the site of the Russell Cave, again, just north of the city which is alleged to be a part of a vast cave network that extends underneath the city itself. He noted that most of these were ancient burial sites. Other rumors have spoken that large prehistoric skeletons have been found underneath the city, of some measuring tall as seven or eight feet and sporting red hair. They must have been uh, ancestors of mine. Uh, could be, but <laughs> we're talking like ancient times. Not a lot of red-haired folks cruising around middle America thousands of years ago. No, not at that time. What's up with that? I know it's got it's kind of cool. I mean, wasn't there like a bunch of catacombs beneath Lexington or something? Apparently so, time? yeah. Like when the city was founded and a lot of the major construction started downtown, they started finding the story, finding these things, weirding people out. There's even a river system underneath the city, you know, Town Branch. Oh, I had no idea. Runs right underneath Lexington. Construction project now that's been funded to bring it back to the surface and establish like a San Antonio kind of like river walk. That would be super cool. Yeah. I could I could definitely dig that. The homeless that. would love it. <laughs> <laughs> Out there just playing in the water. Pretty much. Another major um, academic credit of his is the um, preservation, the discovery, preservation, and interpretation translation of the Wallam Olam, which is the epic history of the Delaware Indians. Um, as we mentioned before, he was also a very early proponent of the concept of evolution. You know, about, about that same time, Darwin was doing his initial research, coming up with the theory of evolution as he was noticing how species changed. And Raffinesk was already using that, that term openly. I like that you pronounced it evolution instead of evolution. That's <laughs> Oh. Oh, you know, the theme of this episode is fancy. Oh, yeah, it's supposed to be easy. <laughs> um, also, however, his time at Transylvania University was a bit controversial. Of course, being this kind of bizarre genius, so he was kind of an outsider, kind of an oddball, and he got the reputation for kind of practicing a little bit of lazy. Many of the new species that he coined the new scientific names for were simple, like, small variations from existing species that we already knew about. This is called splitting. He was known as a splitter. So, you know, maybe this species of bluegill has one additional anal fin or something, and so he would put that down. You immediately had to go to butt stuff, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. Oh, did. okay. I thought they'd get a rise out of him. Um, so his Wallum Odom was apparently based on these wooden tablets that he had possession of and then lost. Kind of after he published all this work and interpreted all these things and translated you know, into English. So there's no way that anybody could ever like confirm this stuff. People think that maybe he was either trying to create a hoax or he was the victim of a hoax himself. And it brought this information forward in good faith, but just kind of got schnookered into it. Um, it's still kind of divided. I mean, there are people that are in his camp and there are people that say it doesn't quite add up. Oh, there's a good scandal uh, Ooh, conserving. Yeah, intrigue, we mystery, have a good scandal, scandal, right? Like I said, his, his tenure at Transylvania University was, what, 1819 to 1826. We had a good seven year before he was eventually fired 
by the university president, one Mr. Horace Holly. Zach, you'll, you'll enjoy that. Uh-huh. I mentioned before he was a bit of a ladies' man. Rumor was that he was <clears throat> involved with Holly's wife. Right there on the desk, man. Yeah, maybe so. Again, you know, Dracula was always kind of a seductive character. He could do that whole eyeball eye thing, you know, raise one eyebrow and give you the look and your clothes just fall off. See, like I said, looking at the guy's picture, when you say, like, the eyeball thing, I'm still thinking, like, yeah. Igor. <laughs> I'm thinking Bella Lugosi, you know, the one cocked eyeball and the fingers out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> All right, Jason. I mean, this is this is great. It's a great history lesson and everything, and it's totally cool that he was, you know, banging the university president's wife. Like, that's kind of awesome. Allegedly. Allegedly. But, you know. All right, this is a horror podcast, man. What's what's all this got to do with uh, the ooky spooky and paranormal? Well, for whatever reason, you know, he may have just been fired because he never showed up to class, was always off doing his research, and then he was an oddball and he didn't get along with his other colleagues at Transy. So, for whatever reason, he was let go, and he wasn't too happy about that. So, upon his dismissal from the university, Raff claims to have placed a curse upon President Holly and the college itself. Soon after, within years. Holly passed away, and the largest college building caught fire. Ooh. Well, and the other thing, too, was that, so after a few years, Holly was actually fired as well. Oh. And then he went down to Louisiana, kind of, I guess, in disgrace or as whatever. You do. And he died of yellow fever. Oh, that was a big problem, there. yeah. Yes. Could it be a curse? Maybe. Maybe. After he was let go, Raffinesque returned to Philadelphia and continued studying throughout his life and producing, you know, research and pamphlets and everything until his death in 1840. Of course, this experience kind of broke him, though. I mean, he died a pauper. I mean, he had this great academic record and everything. A lot of it we still use today. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's kind of gray, and there's a lot of grave. I mean, he wasn't a total fraud. Maybe he got in some stuff that was sketchy science, but also he did produce a lot of legit words. So you, he can't be dismissed, and it's honestly kind of a, an overlooking of his record to not to, to not see him as a more famous scientist. Well, and some some things about his death. He actually died of stomach cancer, and mm-hmm. it's believed that he died of stomach cancer because he was eating this plant that he had discovered called the angel hair fern. And he thought that it was a treatment for tuberculosis, and hmm. he believed that he had tuberculosis. So I guess he was just down in these angel hair ferns, and then he eventually kind of killed himself by doing that. <laughs> Hey, I've cured tuberculosis, but giving myself stomach cancer. And now I'm going to die anyway. <laughs> so there's, honestly, I mean, I don't know if it's because of the curse or because the university itself wants to write itself in the in the annals of history, uh, annals of history, as far as Raffinesque is concerned. But in 1924, and this is 84 years after the poor guy's death, quote, friends of Trans University went up to Philadelphia, found his grave, dug it up, and brought his bones back to Lexington, Kentucky, and entombed them in, like, the largest building on campus now, affectionately known as Old Morrison. And every year, the university holds events on campus and during the week leading up to Halloween known as RAF Week. Some of the festivities include Pumpkin Mania. I go to it every year. I don't live oh, far. It's, it's super cool. Yeah, I live, like, five blocks from this place. And basically, anybody in town can show up with a carved jack-o'-lantern, or you can just show up and you can carve one yourself. A lot of the local breweries have gotten in on it. You can come down to... West Six or, or Blue Stallion, they'll have pumpkins for free. You can carve them up. And they take them all up to the steps of Old Morrison. It has this huge like lead-up series of steps. They lay them all out, and they light them all up the week before Halloween. And it's hundreds, hundreds of pumpkins all lit up at once. You can do whatever you want. We should have a uh, Gravedigger Radio pumpkin to put out there. Oh, That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. Maybe Skullfest Radios, too. We could use their logo, carve that 
I think so. It's it's a big attraction. I mean, you know, thousands of people show up every year to stand in front of Old Morrison and uh, check out these jack-o'-lanterns. Well, as super cool as the uh, the idea of having his bones and everything are there, mm-hmm. there is, to a degree, a certain amount of skepticism surrounding that. True. Uh, at the time, I guess maybe some of the uh, the cemeteries in Philadelphia were so packed, they would bury some people six deep. Like, they would just stack them. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. And so there's some conjecture that it, it's actually a woman from Philadelphia that they snatched up her bones and brought them to. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just one theory. I, I personally, I like the idea that they actually returned his bones back to Transylvania yeah. to to uh, to break the curse. They, they were trying to do right by him, you know, 84 years later. And uh, they've done a lot of things since then to try to reclaim his legacy. I mean, he was, for his time, a great, he really was. Other things that go on during RAF week, the, the student, willing voluntary students can enter a raffle. And I think they choose four. What do you win if you if you uh, come up in the raffle? Well, for the great prize of winning the <laughs> raffle during Raff Week, you get the opportunity to stay Halloween night in Raff's tomb. Yes. Come on down. And if you go to Pumpkin Mania and you're facing Old Morrison, the left casement on, on the side of the stairs leading up where all the pumpkins are is the tomb. You're right there. We've got to go out and actually check that out. I, I, I need to sneak in to act like I'm supposed to be there. See if we can record an episode in the yeah. tomb. But, I mean, the university promotes this. They've got a YouTube video that shows, like, four female students. Like, oh, hey, they're in their, like, jammies. And they're hanging out on this dude's tomb. <laughs> just, I mean, literally, like, sitting on top of the tomb. <laughs> Are they just, like, hanging out, having, like, a sexy pillow fight or some kind of co-ed bullshit? I, I don't know what went on when the cameras were shut off, but they're, they're, like, they're like, happy to be there. <laughs> Recently, also in 2018, the university adopted a new mascot, the long-eared Raffinesque Bat as the official mascot of the Transylvania University. I mean, it only makes sense. They've really got to capitalize on this Dracula thing. Um, he appears on all their official merchandising. You know, if you got drive by the university, their flags. They've got a version of the flag, which has a little Raffinesque bat uh, on it. See, now I picture, what was it, the uh, the bat from Anastasia, mm-hmm. the animated movie. That like I want that to be their mascot now. Yeah. Um, now, their, their official like name for the sports teams are the Pioneers, but... The, the logo and everything is the long-eared Raffinesque bat, which is still a species of, of, of bat that's recognized scientifically. Um, they installed a new plaque in 2019. This was less than a year ago, uh, September, I think. Um, a plaque that reads, Honor to whom honor is overdue on the campus. And this is a repetition of the same slogan that is um, chiseled into the, the, the cover stone for his tomb there. So they're, they're trying to make amends with the old guy. Maybe, maybe break the curse? I know we're supposed to be a horror podcast and supposed to be, you know, all about things evil and spooky, mm-hmm. but I just looked up the long-eared raffinous back, yeah. and that thing is cute as fuck. Oh, is it? Like, I I kind of love it. Oh my god, it's got huge ears, yeah, like I know. 25% of its body. I mean, I know this guy's a great thinker and a great mind, but he was pretty on the nose with this bat, like, <laughs> no points for creativity, but like, yep, that bat's yeah. got long ears. What are we going to call it? Well, my name's Raffinesque. Well, I found it. <laughs> that thing's got long ears. Well, that's a Raffinesque long-eared bat. Absolutely. And it's now the mascot of Transylvania University, affectionately nicknamed Raph. So there you have it, Zach, the entire history of Constantine Samuel Raffinesque Schmaltz. I like it. I think it's a fun story. I think it's something, you know, cool to have a local legend like that. Yeah. I think, you know, I'd be curious to see what other local legends people don't know about. And if in your area that, you know, if you're listening from and you have a cool local legend, send that to us. We'd be more than happy to check it out and maybe have it on the show. We will be there. Well, you may be there. I've got shit to do. <laughs> we'll be th- I'll be there in spirit. Ooh, spirit. 
Boo-hoo. Well, guys, thank you for joining us for another chilling episode of Gravedigger Radio. Tune in next time for another spooky story.